Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Last week, the Biden administration held a landmark virtual meeting of global leaders to discuss the urgency of climate action and to encourage global action. But is Australia being left behind? Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. My name is Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and I'm the Human Futures Fellow here at the Australian National University College of Health and Medicine. I'm without Sharon Bessel today, who is interstate on work. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. But we are here at the Crawford School of Public Policy. And of course, the Crawford School is the Asia Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Can I remind listeners to check out our degree programs and short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Today's topic is around climate change and to talk particularly about the extraordinary change in the global narrative. The United States President Joe Biden has put climate change front and centre in his first 100 days in office. His appointment of John Kerry as the Special Climate Envoy, a cabinet-level position, and his decision to return the country to the Paris Agreement on his first day in office signals his country's recommitment to the issue after the Trump presidency. Last week at the President's virtual climate summit, which was attended by more than 40 other world leaders, Biden spoke of creating an economy that's not only more prosperous, but healthier, fairer and cleaner for the entire planet. His commitment to a whole-of-government approach speaks loudly that the US climate action will guide both domestic and international policy across many areas, and I think we already see this apparent in the work that's been done so far by that administration in its first 100 days. At that summit, the United States committed to serious action, with a 50-52% to below 2005 level by 2030 target for emissions reduction. This is the largest additional reduction in a nationally determined contribution that's been proposed in this round of updates. Biden says his plan will set American economy towards net zero emissions by no later than 2050. According to Professor Frank Jotso from the Crawford School here at ANU, this new US target blows the Australian targets, which are roughly half that of the US target, out of the water. At the summit, Australia was among a group of key emitters, including India, Indonesia, Mexico and Russia, that didn't make any new commitments to reduce oil, gas or coal use. 
And so today we want to ask how significant is this change in rhetoric and action from the United States for global efforts to combat climate change? And how can Australian policymakers and society translate this shift into rapid change in Australia's climate policy landscape? And so I'm delighted to be joined today by three friends and colleagues as guests for our discussion. Firstly, Professor Mark Howden, who's well known to our podcast listeners. Mark's the director of the new Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions here at the Australian National University. He's the vice chair of the IPCC and a member of the ACT Climate Change Council. Mark's legacy in terms of work on climate change is goes back some decades with work on climate variability, climate change, innovation, adoption and policy. He's been a major contributor to the IPCC since 1991 with roles in the second, third, fourth, fifth and now sixth assessment reports, sharing the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize with other IPCC participants and Al Gore. Alongside Mark is Imran Ahmed, Imran's an honorary associate professor at the ANU Fenner School of Environment and Society and again, another friend of our podcast with us many times previously. He's held senior management positions in the international organisations and government and he's been a member of the United Nations expert groups and is a WWF Australian governor. And finally, Dr. Sophie Lewis, who's the current ACT Commissioner for Sustainability and Environment. Her most recent role before this was as a senior lecturer and climate scientist at the University of New South Wales here in Canberra. And she's a lead author on IPCC Climate Change Sixth Assessment Report for the chapter on weather and climate exchange extremes in a changing climate. Sophie was the ACT Scientist of the Year in 2019 in recognition for her research, particularly on weather extremes and how climate change contributes to extreme weather events such as heat waves, bushfires and droughts. Welcome all of you. Thank you for coming in today. Morning. Thanks so much. So the first question to each one of you. How significant was this Biden summit? I know I was particularly struck by the change in language. Is this summit a changing point for global climate change policy? Sophie? I feel like this is a hugely significant announcement. Uh, Since the smoke rolled into Eastern Australia in late 2019, I feel like every conversation I have had on climate change has been emphasising the severity of the challenges that we're facing. And in the last couple of weeks is the first time I've felt optimistic about what this might mean in terms of our action on climate change. So this announcement by Biden uh, in terms of those 2030 targets and the 2050 uh, net zero emissions goal uh, is really tangible in terms of the impact that that would have in terms of our emissions. We know that the US is a huge emitter. Their greenhouse gas contribution is uh, roughly 15% of what occurs globally. So in terms of what that might mean in terms of climate change action, that target is hugely significant, but it's also around that rhetoric that you mentioned, that that is establishing a leadership position that pushes countries like Australia uh, further and further to the periphery and really demonstrates how insufficient Australia's targets are. So yes, it's a new optimism, isn't it? Imran, did you get the same burst of optimism when you heard the change in language? Um, yes, uh, and uh, with a with a cautious optimism, um, and and I think um, uh, you know the U.S. announcement, particularly a day before, I guess uh, the summit was ve- is very encouraging. I mean, at, uh, with the last four years of climate denialism in the U.S. and really retrogative steps happening, so that was a kind of a fresh breath here coming from the US. Uh, 
and Biden administration doing that within the first hundred days of being in office. So uh, they are they are committing to the election pledge in uh, coming forward, and with the U.S. sort of uh, uh, using its soft power, which was lost in the last four years, uh, to bring together a coalition of uh, heads of state and and civil society and private sector organization to the table uh, now. Uh, targets are are a very welcome step because uh, under Paris Agreement you, there is um, uh, there is an uh, there is inbuilt sort of um, sort of uh, uh, mechanism for uh, raising ambition and that's where we are heading to Glasgow and further down the track because it's 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 left to countries to come together with targets and. Uh, so uh, you got you got major emitters announcing with Japan, uh, Korea announcing um, uh, elimination of funding for coal uh, plants, uh, and Canada coming forward. So I, I think I think those are very very encouraging uh, signs. Now this will lead up to other sort of dialogues that are going to happen: the Peterson dialogue in Germany, the G7 summit the G20, and then uh, the uh, the COP. So I think with these series of steps, uh, you know, it seems um, it seems quite encouraging. But mind you, targets are just one sort of policy announcement. Mm. What also needs to happen, and that's deep down in countries, is the sort of pathway to get to net zero. And that's that's equally important. Mm. Um, so I'll stop at that and then we'll sort of take well, it further. We will most definitely explore a lot of those issues. And so mm-hmm. the implementation, I think, is a really interesting challenge. Mm-hmm. Mark, how about you? Is the wave of optimism contagious? Uh, look, look, I think it, it is a bit of a change. And and apart from the obvious statement that the US is back, uh, which I think in its own right is really important, uh, it's it's the preparedness to talk about combinations of technology and policy, mm. uh, backing it up with significant uh, budgetary uh, input uh, and engagement across the board um, within the US and elsewhere, which I think really is the big story there. But if we actually look at what it's changed, I think it's fundamentally changed the diplomatic discussions. So the international negotiation, the international scene is different from what it was. Uh, it's changed, I think, the politics. And so we can already see that flowing through with uh, announcements here in Australia and, and the, the change in tone and the change in words which are being used. Not completely, but but at least partially. Uh, I think it also um, has potential to change the nature of trade. And so we're starting to see the prospects of uh, trade options coming through, such as carbon border tax adjustments, uh, becoming more realistic, or at least the threat uh, becoming greater, uh, which will impact on Australia if uh, that occurs as uh, envisaged. And lastly, I think really significant implications for research and development and technology because the US is such a huge powerhouse once they get behind one of these things. So the amount of money they're putting in, the the horsepower they have there, um, ultimately will change the technology scene that we can then draw from ourselves. And and so maybe we can follow on from that about how the Biden plan sees that emission reduction and the importance of investment in R and D. But I, I was really struck that it's a it's a whole of government approach. Do you understand a little bit more about how what their roadmap looks like for their fifty to fifty two percent reduction? 
Not a great deal because there has, hasn't been hasn't a lot been. put out <laughs> there. But but one of the key things they say is that they're going to get their own house in order first. Mm. So so everything federal that they have um, control over uh, is looking to to move. So um, whether whether it's uh, moving their vehicle fleet or um, uh, restrictions in the pipeline, so the, the Keystone pipeline, um, or uh, looking at defence forces and how they can reduce their emissions footprint um, through to um, you know policy arrangements within um, the federal sphere. But obviously, um, that doesn't cover everything. It's only a part of the emissions profile of the US. So I, I think you'd have to see that as a good start, um, but it's essentially establishing uh, key um, uh, activities that then others can join in on. Mm. Yep. Yeah, one of the things that I would add here is I think in terms of the uh, uh, encouraging signs um, from Biden uh, from this climate summit talk and, and sort of the missing link here, I think there were some announcements on finance that came from the US and they're back into the uh, funding the GCF. Uh, but we must remember that there are three elements of this whole picture, mitigation, adaptation, and climate finance to enable all that. And we have to get a large amount, number of developing countries in who have fundamental sort of uh, development and adaptation and climate impact issues. Mm. So uh, for, for Glasgow to be successful, the funding, uh, uh, the uh, funding has also to flow. So the the mobilization of hundred billion that was promised under the Paris Agreement, there's very little money there. So you can see from developing countries and civil society advocates that the finance window has not been really been spoken in much depth, and there's not much commitment coming out from the wealthy countries for uh, the Green Climate Fund and other financing instruments. Uh, and I think that was coming up in part of the conversation around the climate summit was was the difference between the commitment and the actual translation of cash. Uh, are we optimistic that this moment of global pandemic is a good time to change global investment in developing countries? Do you, do you think that this is an opportunity for other countries, both wealthier countries investing um, and less well-off countries being able to, to harness the moment for change? Obviously, all crises are an opportunity to invest. Uh, but if you look at uh, the sort of green investment drive, uh, particularly in wealthy countries and developing countries, I think uh, the developing countries have gone into a lot of, uh, you know, uh, poverty has uh, has increased because of the effects of COVID. So um, there have been sort of investment, but not at the level partic- uh, at both ends from developed countries and also in, in wealthy countries, so just a larger sort of not just developed, but larger wealthy countries. Uh, and um, I mean, uh, just coming back to Australia, where we are, I mean, we've pushed for a gra- gas-led recovery now, uh, which was sort of uh, fundamentally at odds with the kind of uh, technology space that we are in, where we could push for a much uh, greater technology-led and green-inspired recovery. Mm-hmm. Sophie, as it stands, Australia's emission target reduction, um, our targets for reduction, uh, are roughly half that now of the United States and, and certainly pale behind large uh, developed countries. The, I'm thinking about the European Union and the United Kingdom. What do you think has been the international reaction to Australia's stance? Yeah, so the comments following uh, that um, Biden announcement and the contrast with uh, Prime Minister Morrison's uh, maintaining our 26 to 28% commitment um, were along the lines that it's insufficient or it's incompatible with the uh, 2015 Paris Agreement goals. Uh, but locally, we're also hearing that, you know, they're 
woeful or they're embarrassing or Australia is retaining the status as a laggard on climate. And I think that is really reflected in when we look at those other economies and the targets that they're making and also how at odds those uh, federal commitments are with what's going on when we look at the states and territories. Mm. So the states and territories have presented targets for net zero emissions and timeframes for that that are hugely more ambitious than the Commonwealth. Uh, so I think now all states and territories have uh, committed to the 2050 yep. net zero emission timeframe. Um, here in the ACT, it's 2045 and our interim targets are far more ambitious. Mm. So by 2025, we're aiming to have, I think it's 50 to 60% reduction, but that's on a different baseline. So that's on the 1990 baseline, not the 2005. Mm. And that's when we start to get into the details and these accounting tricks about yep. what we measure against and the reference years. Um, but what we can see is that the state's and uh, most of the other developed economies are far more ambitious than what's being presented uh, by the Australian government. And I think that's why really when we look at them, they're hugely embarrassing. I'm embarrassed mm. that that's being presented for the Australian people. So maybe we can send our, our heads of state, as in the, the states, uh, off to COP26 at the end of the year. This is a good opportunity for us to take a really short break. And of course, we'll be back in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. I'm here today with Mark Howden, Imran Ahmad, uh, Sophie Lewis, talking about the significance of real change in the global rhetoric that's been led by the Biden administration in the last week. Before the break, we were talking about the international reaction to Australia's climate policies and the striking differences between Australia's rhetoric on climate change and that of Biden and particularly even people like Boris Johnson in the UK uh, and some of that rhetoric around the opportunities for jobs and for economic change as we transition away from a, uh, a carbon-intensive economy. Biden and Johnson, of course, have framed their emission reductions as a way of making their countries more prosperous and sustainable and not less so. But in Australia, we've really uh, framed it as a zero-sum game Game. We're failing, I think, to grasp the opportunities, and these are topics that come up regularly. Mark, where, where do you see the Australian targets? Uh, you wanted to follow on from Sophie's observation about this difference between our state-led action and the federal government targets. Um, how do you see those things matching up? Sophie's made the point that um, our targets are, are considered to be weak compared with emerging targets from other developed countries. And, uh, and But putting that argument aside, there's a question about how well we're going against those targets mm. in the first place. And... Uh, 
And so when we actually take apart the numbers, what we actually see is really interesting, I think, and that is that the vast majority of our emission reductions have occurred due to land clearing legislation. Um, uh, Secondly, um, the price on carbon um, in the previous government also drove down temporarily uh, fossil fuel emissions. And, and those have actually been the two most significant re- emission reductions. They happened under the previous government and they were driven by policy. And what we've seen in the over the last several years is essentially a flatlining of those emissions if you look at total emissions uh, until we got to COVID. So obviously COVID's pushed that down a little bit. And that's actually really interesting in its own right that our totals have flatlined in spite of the set of current policies operating at a Commonwealth level. But when we actually look at our core fossil fuel-based emissions, they've actually gone up consistently over those years up to the point of the coronavirus. And so, so in fact, what our, is actually happening in our, in our system is very clear is that the current set of policies are not adequate to drive down emissions to reach our target. So at the moment, regardless of whether we think our target is strong enough, we're actually not on track to meet it. Um, some people say that the uh, expansion of renewables will allow us to move more rapidly towards that. But what we're actually seeing is the investment in renewables is actually backing off because of uncertainty, political uncertainty and policy uncertainty. So it's, it's actually saying um, that we really need to have a combination of technology and policies. Yep. And that's exactly the message we got from the US administration. So um, on several occasions, they made comments about um, Australia and that we actually needed to have a combination of technology mm-hmm. and policies because tech Technology by itself won't get to those targets. So there's a difference then between the state target setting and translating through to action in terms of measurable decreases in our carbon emissions. So if you do, you have any more information about that? The difference between you know in the ACT we've achieved 100% renewable energy, um, and yet we're not seeing our emissions go down as much on a national level, even when there is state enthusiasm. Um, do we do we need federal government policy direction? Can we do this at a state level on its own? Do you think? I think that both hugely important. So I think the state uh, targets are really important and what we are doing within the ACT is all we can be doing in terms of the uh, targets for our overall greenhouse gas emission reduction but also in terms of our renewable energy contributions. But I think this really comes back to what are these targets for and we talked about there's the targets but there's also the implementation. So they serve multiple purposes in terms of signalling to industry about um, where they can uh, invest with confidence uh, and where we're headed Uh, and that really is I think what Mark might have been suggesting is that the targets are intended to be ambitious and uh, not necessarily easily met, Um, but then to use those targets uh, in a way that's politicised to emphasise particular values that perhaps aren't actually representative of reductions that have been made is really counter to um, what the Paris Agreement was intending to do, which Mm -hmm. was to limit global warming and avoid catastrophic climate change. So really these targets are something I think we should be embracing and if that's what the states are doing, then that's fantastic. Just building on that, I think uh, 
even um, and, and and the U.S. example is sort of very kind of relevant in the sense, mm-hmm. although they're, they're a very high emitter compared to Australia. Even under the um, um, the Trump climate denialism, the U.S. states uh, were really at the foref- uh, still at the forefront of ag- aggressive climate action. California, which is the sixth largest economy of the world, I mean, look at climate action in California. So I think the net, I think what Australia sort of missed out, I guess, in this opportunity. I mean, it wasn't invited to the earlier UK dialogue in December. This was the first um, invitation that it did receive. So it it sort of missed out on opportunity to show climate leadership. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, um, and I agree that federal government sort of policy uh, uh, is very, very important to drive any targets. I mean, it's not just technology. You need policies and enabling policies to actually uh, have to have that investment and have the climate action. So, so, so that's 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 not happening. And I, I one of the things that sort of the narrative in Australia, it, we're still sort of struggling with the narrative where climate change is looked at as a cost, mm. not as an investment. Mm. So that narrative then sort of if you take it up to the political level, both parties, I guess, are struggling with that narrative because they're not able to sort of uh, sort of bring the message down, particularly to people that this is. Um, you know, in your benefit, this is because everyone knows that, um, you know, fossil fuels are a standard asset and, you know, you, you, the jobs are going to be generated in the clean energy and in the clean and in the green sector. So it's a real discord, isn't it, between yeah. the global perspective and even conservative governments that can see the economic advantage in a transition. Mm-hmm. Mark, did you have any idea about why we can't hone that narrative more effectively in the Australian political context? I might start just by pointing out that um, that narrative is longstanding, mm. and and it is uh, you know it's it's the environment versus jobs, you know that that sort of narrative, and and that's actually been shown by the coronavirus, for example, to be a false narrative. Yes. Um, that those countries which actually had good responses in terms of um, health, public health, um, also have good responses in terms of the economics, and so and and vice versa. And there's a very clear relationship, and it's exactly the same with with climate change or environment issues more broadly. And we. Need Need to start to adopt that rather than have the, the false narrative, and and in the US, um, uh, President Biden was very clear. He said, "When I when I see climate change, I see jobs." You mm. know that that was part of his revision of that narrative. So it's actually climate change action and jobs, and and we need to adopt the same thing because the evidence is very clear that we can align those two things. So that's a, a an important part of that, and and in terms of how we go about that, well. There is a fundamental role of leadership here. It's actually to to reverse that narrative, to change that, to lead Australia to a much more positive space when it comes to these dialogues. Uh, and to do that, of course, they can back that up with good evidence. And there's plenty of sources for that evidence, including from the university sector. Absolutely. It's a, it, it's part of the reason why these podcasts hopefully are important, that we can contribute to these conversations um, and begin to change the narrative. Mark, I wanted to talk about the framing of, of climate change as a, as a zero sum and the way in which that impacts on our regional communities in Australia. And I, I think there's, again, there's an emerging discussion, there's much more enthusiastic discussion as we're recovering from the coronavirus pandemic about opportunities for regional investment and development. Um, do you think the zero sum game is a good way to frame it or do you think we could do better? Uh, look, I think there's there's lots of ways we could do better, um, and and to sort of uh, do the divide and conquer approach, I think is really poor politics. It's not in Australia's interest to do that. Uh, we need to be actually saying that there's. Uh, 
automatically connections between, say, regional um, centres and the cities, and that happens in all sorts of different ways. Australia, you can't divide into into sectors in that way. Um, and, and we can, I think, demonstrate very clearly how um, benefits to the regions also can be benefits to people who live in the cities. It's not about the dining parties and cafes in the inner cities versus the countries, uh, country town people. Um, we're all in this together. We all produce greenhouse gases through our activities. Um, we can all um, reduce that footprint. We can all be part of the solution. We all have to adapt to climate changes that we're seeing already and that will come out in the future. Um, the, the idea that we can um, play that game is actually really problematic. It's mm. it's a it's a, a political game. It's not aligned with good policy. It's not aligned with good uh, national pride and, and national vision. I think one of the things, again, in messaging, uh, I think uh, I agree with Mark, I mean, uh, is, 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 is again the narrative and how we're sort of, sort of communicating climate change. I mean, uh, just give you, uh, just give you an example. I mean, we are already 1.1 or 1.2 degree ab- above pre-industrial. So uh, linking that with body temperature, I mean, one degree, when you have one degree temperature rise, you start having a fever and then it goes up and then until you're dead. Mm-hmm. So I think what, what the impacts that we are now facing and Australia in particular is facing is on 1.1, 1.2 degree uh, that we have. And, and it's, it's been, uh, there's been adequate documentation by scientists in terms of what the impacts were if the temperature going to rise and we are seeing the evidence the bushfire the uh, the floods um the extreme weather events the increase so i think i think that we we need to communicate that message to the people that it's in our own fundamental interest to um to to uh, take aggressive climate action because if we don't do that and then showing again where Australian leadership matters is because uh, we are a fraction of global emissions we need aggressive global action uh, across uh, uh, across the world so that the actual sort of emissions come down and uh, we we remain within uh, sort of uh, climate stabilization targets and unless we increase our own ambition to what the scientists are telling us. I mean, there's only about 45, 50% documented that we have to reduce and we are still not there yet. Yep. But I, I think people get it. I don't, I don't know that there's necessarily huge value to be gained in communicating that that one degree has already impacted us. I think, you know, when I speak to people in my experience, people do understand that climate change is hugely impactful and hugely expensive. So I think really the the greater gain is in terms of uh, recognising that betrayal of political leadership and understanding that leadership sits in many locations. So just as Mark and Anna Greta said, that, you know, within regions, within communities, within individuals, we are all empowered to lead and that it's that betrayal at the federal level that we're experiencing. So in my experience, that, that recognition that... Uh, Climate change to date and future projections around climate change are problematic has already been well understood. Yeah. No, I, I just want to add, actually, I, I think maybe I've not been understood properly. I think the problem is uh, that uh, we we talk among the converted. I mean, I don't know the conversation if you're going to have in Townsville, in Hunterville Valley, where they're cold communities. So I think we need to sort of sit down with those people and have that conversation. Because, I mean, uh, you, you could see that New South Wales government had Malcolm Turnbull appointed to the board and they had to withdraw within 24 hours. 
But they didn't have to. They chose to. They chose to. to. And I think in those communities there's anxiety. I think in those communities they know that coal is not a long-term investment and that they know that there's going to be a need to transition away from that as a primary source of income. And that the need for leadership, again, as Mark said, the need for that change in narrative, the need for hope. I saw a, saw a, I was talking to a guy yesterday in a high-vis shirt, uh, obviously working uh, in, a, in a manufacturing uh, sector uh, from a regional centre, and, and he walked in and said to me, ah, oh, look, I heard you on the radio talking about climate change. He builds wind farms for a living, um, and he was talking about the extraordinary opportunities for investment in regional centres uh, as the company that he's part of uh, is, is rolling out the wind farms. Uh, solar farms as a new form of investment and the opportunities for really transitioning in, the, in regions like the Hunter Valley so that we can maintain employment. It's, it's not hard. The solutions are there. I think it's about having local conversations and bringing people along as part of the journey, not dragging them, but taking them, taking them uh, with us. I think that's the really important part of it. So if you do, we need to talk about the consequences of inaction. I'm struck that the language has shifted again, that we've got global leaders who are talking about the future of humanity. We're talking about a compromise to our human future, an impact that will be seen this century as really quite profound in terms of the survival for our species, the uh, the human species. So do we need to talk more about the consequences or do you think it's it's adequately understood? Do Do you want to reflect on your experience as a scientist? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I think I, I don't think the consequences are well understood, um, even from the scientific perspective. I don't think we necessarily have an understanding of how bad it could be. But also in terms of um, public understanding, I think if we go back to what your Mark were talking about in terms of the narrative, um, we are bound up in that narrative that climate change or climate action is expensive and. Um, perhaps not worth it, rather than looking at um, what is avoided, what world is avoided by acting on climate change now. And that is that uh, enormous impact of uh, that further warming in the climate system. And we do know, as Mark has so brilliantly articulated, that every degree matters. So if we're talking about the Paris targets, those overall limiting of global warming to one and a half or two degrees, although they do sound quite close, marginally different, Um, they are hugely different in terms of the impacts that they Mm. would have on the climate system. And that perhaps goes back to what Imran was saying about um, the parallel with the human body and our core body temperature and its ability to withstand small changes. We don't get a half a degree increase in heat extremes moving from one and a half to two degrees of global warming. When we look locally at our extreme events, that's when we're really starting to get unprecedented changes. Mark, do you have any perspective on that? Do we need to articulate that increase in extreme weather is the message that I think is effective, at least I hope it is. Um, how, how, do we, how do we explain the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees? Well, the IPCC had a whole special report on this which actually showed that what sounds like a small number is actually really significant, really significant. and that's the, the things that Sophie was just talking about. Importantly, I think we have to translate that into things that people understand. And so, so people inherently don't have any feel, I think, for what 1.5 versus 2 actually means in, in terms of impacts. But if we translate it to um, the number of heat stress days or the change in one in a hundred year flood or um, the impact on agriculture, um, then people get that. But also at the same time, we need to move the conversation, I think, from uh, the future 
um, to be inclusive of what's already happening. Mm. So just this morning I heard on the news uh, uh, glacier breakdown happening much faster than anticipated. Um, and putting it in metrics that people tried, you know, might be able to understand, you know, how, how many meters of water over Tasmania sort of numbers. And, and that's, that's one way of doing it. The other way is converting it into dollars. So, so, um, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a study which actually showed that, um, uh, food production has already been dragged back by climate change to the tune of about 21% globally, um, which actually happens to be exactly the same number that ABEARS in a study uh, came up with a couple of years ago, um, which was, I think, 22%, um, across Australia's broad acre ag. And so that's actually impacting on, um, the economics of farming communities. Uh, which comes back to that previous question. This isn't about, you know, um, the, the rural people versus the city people because the farmers being hit um, by climate change um, already um, and that will get worse in the future. Um, but that's also impacting on people in the cities through prices for, um, for food. So we actually need to start to convert these things um, into metrics that people understand, into things that people value, like clean water availability, um, safe places to live, um, uh, you know, good food at, at reasonable prices, um, and and also have that narrative, which is that climate change is here with us now, um, and the future, um, which we can choose, um, will be very different depending on whether we continue to emit at the current rates or if we pull back according to the Paris Agreement. Mm. I think uh, I think again uh, we are focusing again on. The same thing: communication, messaging. How are we? How are we doing it? And I think the bushfire, uh, sort of for the first time, told us about domestic climate refugees. I mean, people moving from their homes. So I think I think what we need to do is both conveying the challenges in a in an informative way that people can understand, depending on the audience level, and also highlighting the opportunities of climate investment. So there's a cost of climate inaction that needs to be communicated in a in a in a friendlier and in, in a in a manner that people can understand and there's the bringing out the opportunities that are uh, that Australia sort of gets in terms of uh, from climate action. Mm, absolutely. I mean I think that the black summer experience means that this is not a future risk it's now and yeah. I think the messages that have come out of our reflection on black black summer are that by working on the future now we can change the risk uh, that we're presented with potentially in the coming seasons. Um it's been so great having the three of you in the in the uh, studio with me today but we are going to have to wrap this up fairly soon. And so a final question to each one of you. Imran, I might start with you. What's the key piece of advice you would give to Australian policymakers in light of the Biden administration's increasingly active role to, on emissions reduction? I think uh, um, get uh, get your act together and show climate leadership. It's in uh, fundamentally in it's uh, it's in Australia's national interest to show climate leadership on mitigation, on adaptation, on climate finance. We withdrew from Green Climate Fund. We should get back there. And we have enough time to sort of uh, prepare a new ambitious strategy to take to Glasgow. Fantastic. Mark? Pretty much the same. I think we. I, I'd add in that um, change the narrative, um, start to actually generate a vision for Australia that we can all buy into that has climate change at its core um, but brings into other, other issues such as um, social equity and um, you know economic development issues and as part of a, a, a lead within our region. Um, so we need to recoup some ground there. Uh, 
I think it's. Um, I'd send a message that it's not only smart economically, it's not only smart um, in terms of our international future, um, it's actually really smart politically to do that. Sophie? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, we're getting dragged there anyway, so I, I think we should be prepared to make this a, a positive change and something that does have huge social, economic, political benefits, but also in terms of our environment. I mean, if we're talking about the Black Summer, that was so significant in terms of the destruction of our natural environment and these beautiful natural resources we have in Australia. Mm. No, really, really extraordinary opportunity for positive change. Uh, Mark, Imran, Sophie, thank you so much for joining us today on Policy Forum Pod. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Anna Listeners, it was so great to have Mark and Sophie and Imran with us today, three people with extraordinary experience and expertise both in climate change and in the policy landscape here in Australia. This is one of the most important issues for our time, the United Nations and the World Health Organization recognising it as one of the most significant challenges that we will face over the coming decade. And the solutions, I think, are becoming much clearer. The pathway towards change is becoming easier to articulate. And the importance of this narrative shift towards a positive world where the climate action leads us to address some of our broader societal change, I think gives us tremendous opportunity. So I really enjoyed today's discussion and I very much hope you did too. We did, of course, miss having Sharon Bessel with us and next week we'll all be back in the studio together. I think we've got a very interesting conversation lined up uh, around health and the ways in which we can improve the health of our Australian population, but you'll hear more about that, of course, next week. Listeners, we're always interested in feedback. You can find us in a variety of locations. You can reach out to us at Twitter at APPS Policy Forum. That's Apps Policy Forum on Twitter. Or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. You can join our Facebook group. We're at Policy Forum. Uh, if you put type that into the Facebook search bar and find the group, we would love to have you on board. Listeners, we'll be back again next week, joined by some quite remarkable Australian health experts. I'm really looking forward to that discussion and to having Sharon Bessel back with us. So bye-bye for now. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 